Hello, Bethel fandom. You know, one day I'll say that and I won't comment on how much I hate saying a ship portmanteau aloud, and today is not that day. I hate saying ship portmanteaus aloud, but I do it for you because I love you. It is I, your host, Sunny, Dynamic Symmetry, everywhere. Welcome to Keep Singing a Bethel and Beth Green and Daryl Dixon podcast. And today is the big day after the finale. Uh, I, I mean, I know some of you aren't even watching. Those of you who are, I mean, I really liked it. I thought it was a really good fucking episode. Um, in most respects. Not so much in others. I did a write-up on my blog, if you care. Um, CD Corner. I didn't see Beth. I've written about why I actually don't think that's a problem, necessarily, but it's, you know, it kind of sucks. Well, whatever. Settle in for the hiatus. We're gonna have a lot to talk about, a lot to write, a lot to do. In the meantime, this is episode six, I think, of our reading series, where I am, again, reading in order, serially, Vampire Cats Burn, and my safe up here with you, and a one-shot of my choosing, every time different one-shot, and today we have... Let me pull it up here, because I didn't open the tab like I should have... Ah, yes, and all your roads lead to this by Moonwalking Dead. This is just a quick little thing. It's actually kind of a blast from the past. It's uh, from 2014, you know, back when everything was great and we all were happy and thought everything was going to be fine and wonderful and our worlds hadn't imploded yet. And then they did. But yeah, I I really love this fic. Um, This is one of those things where I really try and go back, you know, get a deep cut try and find something that I haven't seen before, maybe that a lot of other people haven't seen. Uh, So if you are not familiar with this fic, then I'm happy to introduce it to you. Um, And like normal, it's, you know, fairly upbeat. I mean, it's a little emotional, it's kind of heavy on Daryl's psychology, which you know is never going to be super upbeat. Uh, But yeah, it's a nice little thing. And uh, aside from that, we have Burn, which is super angsty. Uh, By the way, there's a little bit of porn at the end of it. Not like super explicit porn and things don't go really far, but there's a little bit of porn. Just so you know, don't listen to this with kids in the car. Not that you're doing that anyway. I don't know why you would be because I curse up a storm and everything. But yeah, know that there's porn. And then Safe Up Here With You, which if you know it, you know is fucked up beyond belief. It's not by any means the most fucked up thing I've ever written, but it's up there. Uh, So there's, I mean, again, if you're listening to this, you know Safe Up Here With You. By now, you should know is um, basically horror, but... Things get kind of gory in this one again, just so you know. And also things are starting to tread into sexually fucked up territory, which is my bread and butter, and I'm super excited. All right, but before we get to that, uh, okay, I've got to do my Patreon spiel, but also I want to make a quick announcement, and again, this is TD Corner, so skip ahead or ignore if that's not something you like or something you don't care about. Um, I've been feeling like, I mean, a lot of us... Well, a lot of us have kind of just left because, you know, people move on, things change. Um, but those of us who are still on the team, still around, I mean, a lot of us are kind of being a little quieter lately. And I think partly, at least for my part, is because I kind of don't have anything else to say in a lot of respects. A lot of what I could say is stuff I'm already saying. Um, but I like writing about storytelling and narrative, so I've been doing that. Uh, but yeah, I haven't been super loud about it lately, even though I'm very much still on the team. So I thought that it might be kind of fun this week 
uh, if we all did a thing where those of us who are still on the team, or even those of us who remember the team fondly, uh, if you've made posts of meta, if you've done GIF sets, if you've done edits, um, whatever you've done that you're proud of related to it, or if you have particular favorite posts by other people that you just, you know, you happen to remember or you know about and you can dig them up quickly, uh, let's all just kind of go on a posting spree. You know, let's just kind of bring all this cool stuff back up. Because a lot of it was great. Like, I don't know about you guys, those of you who were producing stuff and maybe still are, but I wrote some stuff I'm proud of and kind of like to bring it back. And there's stuff by other people I'd like to bring back. So I'm going to be doing that, and I invite you to join me. The hashtag for that is going to be TDLibs. Two words. I mean, it's not super original, but you know what? It works, and it doesn't take long to type, so we're going to be doing that. Uh, and that's going to go from tomorrow until next Tuesday. So go nuts. Post. Let's, let's remember what was so great about this when it was in its heyday, because I kind of think it's not so much now. Again, a lot of us are kind of quiet or have moved on. But let's remember what was so great about it. Let's remember when we were really all super active and we're just churning out the theories and the analyses and the meta and it was just flying fast and furious and it was really great. Let's remember what was so awesome about that. And if we're still here, you know, let's let people know that we're still here, that we haven't left. Uh, if you want to write some new stuff, write some new stuff. I've got some things in mind to write that I haven't written, in a, you know, that I've been putting off. and. I'm probably going to try and get some of those done. I have this thing about like plot and narrative and eschatology and end of the world and morality and good and evil and all the kind of stuff that I think Gimple likes. I'm going to be writing about that probably if I can. I have a conference to go to this weekend, so we'll see. But yeah, so I'm doing that. So, you know, be doing that if you want to. I think it's going to be kind of cool. Follow the hashtag TDLibs and hopefully it won't just be me out there by myself posting lonely. Alright, so aside from that, let me do my Patreon spiel really quickly. If you like this podcast, if you're listening to it, I mean, I assume that you don't hate it if you're listening to it. But if you like this podcast and you want to help me keep doing it and you want to support me, I hope you do. Um, well, I mean, the first thing that is great to do is just to reblog that shit. Like, put it on your dash. If people you think aren't listening to it and they would like it, tell them about it. Uh, you know, just spread the word. I, when more people listen to something like this, it's cooler. So, yeah, do that. Help, help, help people know that it exists because they can't listen if they don't. If you want to support me in more of a material way, you can do that via my Patreon, which is linked at the top of my blog at dynamicsymmetry.tumblr.com. There is a link to my Patreon there. And if you want to go there and do a small monthly donation, it helps me keep this going just, you know, because... I mean, generally it helps me justify the amount of time I put into this, which is considerable. But also, I pay out of pocket for some of this stuff, and it helps me cover those costs. It helps me produce the best podcast that I reasonably can, which is, you know, total labor of love. So yeah. And if you don't want to do the Patreon thing, and that's cool, not everybody does, you can do, like, a one-time thing via PayPal at our website, keepsingingpodcast.wordpress.com. There's a picture of Tip Jar. Click Tip Jar. Go to PayPal. Shoot me a couple bucks. It's awesome when you do that. And I love you. And yeah. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and get into this. I'm going to start with Burn. I'm going to go to Safe Up Here with you. And then we're going to go back to happiness with uh, all your roads to lead to this. Uh, with Burn. I just, this is a thing I'm doing and I think it's really cool. Uh, I'm reading it fresh. Like, I am reading it as I read it. So every, pretty much every word I read is the first time I've read that word, which just makes this a really fun experience. It's a lot more fun in some ways than reading my own stuff. Uh, so know that as you go through this. 
It was a lot of fun. All right, so I'm gonna get into that and I'll see you on the flip side. Burn by the Vampire Cat. Chapter five, The Lion's Den, part two, point two. He's telling her this before he can stop himself, inviting her to come and live with them, telling her about the eight houses and how she can choose where she wants to stay and how he and Beth will look after her. She'll have running water and food to eat. He thinks it's a good speech, a convincing one, is already making plans about how he'll fix the water in one of the other houses and dividing their supplies in his head. But when he's done, she's still eyeing him warily. I'm not going anywhere with you, she says. You can't claim me. I won't let you. And suddenly he's deflated. Completely deflated. But it makes sense. Why would she? She thinks he's like Joe and Len and Tony. She thinks he's one of them. Lord knows he looks the part. He wonders if this is the apocalypse version of listening to your mom's advice not to go anywhere with strangers. He can't blame her. She's wise. Very wise. He wonders if Beth could change her mind. He knows that when he tells her, she'll want to come looking for this lost girl, want to save her and look after her. Because that's Beth. She's like him, taking in the lame dogs, the lost boys, the feral cats. Hell, she took him in. Took him in when he sure as shit didn't deserve it after the way he treated her. He remembers holding her pressed to his chest, his muscled arm gripping her tightly and forcing his crossbow on her, forcing her to hold it and shoot it. He'd been so angry, so afraid, so hurt. He'd taken it all out on her. He hadn't been kidding when he said he was a dick when he was drunk, but the fact was he'd been a dick sober, too. She hadn't deserved that. She'd never deserved that, orphan girl that she was. He tried to apologize once, the night after they ran off into the woods, like two naughty little pixies come to cause chaos and then leave again before they were caught. Tried to tell her he was sorry for everything, the harsh words, the manhandling, the treating her like crap, but she told him he had nothing to be sorry for, nothing to make up to her. It was done. Over. And they could dwell on the past or pick up the pieces and start again. They'd both chosen the second option. And there was a time when he thought that was the point he'd started to fall for her. But it wasn't true, because it was impossible to pinpoint a moment, whether it was before or after. All he knew was that by the time they got to the funeral home, he was ready to accept Beth as being his life, ready to accept an existence that only involved her forever. And he was looking forward to it. It wasn't a matter of not having a choice. They didn't. It was a matter of being given exactly what you need, even if it isn't quite what you thought you wanted. Beth changed his mind. No reason she couldn't change Bessie's, too. I can come back, he tells her. Bring Beth with, leave the two of you to talk. You can see if you trust her, make a choice then. She seems to consider this, biting her lips and frowning, completely oblivious to the dead hands in her own. She hushes the walkers distractedly, and they flail harder at their bonds, and he sees the restraint on Frank's other arms start to give. What about Nolly? she asks. What about Nolly? Can she come with? Nolly's dead, he says, regretting it almost instantly. She's not, Bessie answers indignantly. Look! She lets go of Frank and dangles her hand above Nolly's mouth. The walker snaps and gurgles as her fingers almost brush the rotten lips and the yellowed teeth within. Bessie, stop, he says, taking a step towards her. 
If she was dead, she couldn't move, couldn't eat, couldn't shout, she says, hopping over the body and landing on the floor with a small thud. She touches the walker's face and its broken teeth snap at her, black tongue emerging as it pulls on its restraints. She'll be back to normal soon. She looked after me. I'll look after her. Her voice is loud, shrill, and it fills the room, the house, the world like an alarm, a signal for all the walkers, all the broken men, all the dead to come and see, come and live, come and play, come and eat her choicest fruits. Bessie, stop, he says. Stop. No, you need to see that Molly is fine. She just needs medicine. She just needs someone to wash her and feed her and care for her. You just need to see. They just need to see. Beth needs to see. She's shrieking now, voice no longer cracked and weak from lack of use, no longer raspy. Bessie is fine, he tells her. We just need to work something out. There's nothing to work out, she screams, running her hands over the walker's face, touching her hair when it comes out in clumps and sticks to Bessie's fingers. I'm not leaving them. You can't just come in here and take them away. You can't take me away. I'm not yours. And she's right. She's not his. There is nothing to work out. Not really. Not anymore. She'll never leave here. This is where she wants to be. She has her family, the same way he has his, and neither of them will ever leave. Ever. Why are you here? she shouts. Why did you come? What do you want? That question. The one he can't answer. The one he'll never really know. But she's shouting again, and all he wants is for her to stop. A bracelet, he tells her. I wanted to find a bracelet for Beth. He guesses that's as good a reason as any. Probably the closest he has to the truth either way. That damn double bracelet at the forefront of his mind. His ma's jewelry on Beth's wrist. As it should be. As it must be. What normal people did. Normal happy families. People without the bullshit, the drama, the fuck-ups that the Dixons had. He almost wants to laugh out loud when he thinks of what would happen if he'd brought home a girl like Beth in the old world. What Merle would have said. What his old man would have said. If his ma would have roused herself, left Jim Beam behind in the bedroom for a few minutes to come and meet her. Even worse is imagining what would happen when the situation was reversed. Him sitting in Herschel's pristine lounge, Maggie and Sean to the one side, Annette on the other while they appraised his torn clothes, his dirty boots, while they wondered what someone like him was doing sniffing around their pretty little blonde daughter. It's so ridiculous, though, to imagine Beth and him in another life. It would never happen. Could never happen. Is it bad, he wonders, bad that the world has to end to give you what you want? Maybe that means you're wanting the wrong thing in the first place. I'm sorry, Bessie, he says all of a sudden. I shouldn't have come. Get out, she says. Get out now. If you're not like them, you'll leave. She's right. She doesn't know how right she is. He's not like them. He's nothing like them. But he can't leave. Can't leave her here like this. Bessie, you change your mind. You leave something hanging on the door outside. Beth and I will come and fetch you. She looks horrified. Horrified, as if he's just told her he's going to chop off her arm and beat her to death with it. Get out, she shouts again. I don't want you. You or Beth. Okay, okay, he holds up his hands. I'm leaving. Just go, she screams, suddenly rushing towards him, and he thinks she's going to bite him again, but she grabs something from the dresser and shoves it hard into his hands, pushing him backwards at the same time. Go, she shrieks, making the walker snap and groan, and he wants to throw up because he knows he's going to leave her here, leave her here in this mess with the dead. Knows that she can't be with him and Beth, doesn't want to be with him and Beth. 
She beats him into the passageway, and he stumbles over the tapestry again, holding onto the wall for support, not wanting to go down under her blows. But her screams are loud and high and keening, and they shoot through his head until they're the only sound in the world, until all he knows is her voice, her smell, and the feel of her fists. Stop, he says, but he isn't sure she hears above the sound of her own voice as she shoves him again and retreats back into the hazy bedroom, where she holds her arm above Nolly's mouth. Abruptly her screams stop, but the walkers are riled up, moaning and biting, teeth snapping millimeters away from her flesh. Leave now, or I'll let her bite me. He registers how calm her voice is seconds before he understands her words. She's panting, but calm. Steady. I'll do it, she says. I swear to God, I'll do it. She will. He doesn't doubt it. He nods, a moment passing between them. And if he wasn't crazy, and she wasn't crazy, maybe he'd call it understanding. Or maybe he'd call it respect. He backs down the stairs, avoiding the broken glass, holds his breath through the foul-smelling lounge, debris crunching under his feet, a trail of his blood on the carpet before he runs out onto the porch, into the night, drawing big gasps of air into his lungs as if he hasn't breathed in years. He doesn't linger. He can't. It's too much to just stand there, knowing the hell of shit and piss and death that's behind him. As seconds before he's back in the car and hurtling through the night, blood pounding in his ears, another deep-seated ache in his arm dribbling blood all over the car. His hands shake on the wheel, and his bloody grip is tenuous at best, and somehow he feels both as if he's been reborn and is nothing more than a corpse on the ground. He curses himself, him and his ideas, him and his curiosity. Because now, now he knows that she's there, living there alone with the dead, hungry and filthy, and he also knows he can't go back, can face it again, can't risk it, and it feels like a failure all over again. Another Sophia, another Merle, another Beth. You didn't fail, Beth, his ma says. Stop saying you did. But he did fail, Beth. He failed her so many times. He wonders how many he has left before she cuts her losses before she understands that how she sees him ain't the real him. We burned it down, says Beth. We burned it down. She's right. They did. But maybe he really does need her to keep on reminding him sometimes. Maybe he does need to rely on her for something. He decides he's going to ask her for that. Ask her to give him that. And suddenly all he wants is to hold her. Tell her he's sorry for going alone, even though he's not. Even though he's glad he got the meds she needed. But he is sorry that it upset her. That was the last damn thing he wanted. That from now on, they do shit together. None of this going off alone nonsense. Mostly he just wants to see her. Show her he's fine. See that she's okay. That there are no bites. No walkers. No claimers. And no strange girls hanging around in the dark, ready to claw him to bits. He swerves to avoid a lone walker, and has a ridiculous vision of it waving its fist at him for nearly taking it down. And that's when he realizes his breathing is erratic, and his entire body is trembling, and he knows he needs to get himself under control, catch his breath, stop his heart from carving a throbbing passage out of his chest, fight back the red fog in his head, which is nothing like the red fog he sees when he's around Beth. He stops the car. Just for a moment, he tells himself. Just for a second, until he can breathe again. He kills the engine. It's still dark, but it feels like it'll be dawn soon. He can't remember how long he's been away. It feels like seconds and hours at the same time. Minutes and days. Weeks and decades. 
time, and no time at all. And he hates it because he doesn't know if Beth's been waiting for him, or if she's managed to go back to sleep, or if she'll be sitting in her chair nursing a cup of tea and a sterner expression. He thinks of Bessie and the way she held her brother and sister's hands, like they were praying. Praying or playing. Playing over the dead. No, presiding over the dead. A wave of nausea rolls through his body, right from his toes to his gut and up his throat, at the back of his mouth, before it rolls back down again. Down into his bowels, down into the soles of his feet. The tide comes again, and he squeezes his eyes shut, gripping the steering wheel until it passes, and he can take breathy gulps of air. Air that tastes like air, and not death. Until he can breathe like a man, and not like a fish out of water. Until his vision clears, and he can see purple sky, and hear the wind, and feel the cold of the night even inside the car. He has an insane vision of his ma stroking his hair, whispering to him, soothing him. She's sober, unbruised, her eyes bright and her skin smooth and pale. He knows it's not a memory. He has no recollections of his ma unblemished, but somehow it settles him, pacifies him. Calmer, he opens his eyes and looks at the seat next to him where he shoved his crossbow on top of the backpack. He sees a glint beneath one of his bolts, and he remembers how Bessie pushed something into his hand before he retreated out of her hell. Forgive me my trespasses. He reaches across the seat and picks it up. It's a bracelet. As I forgive them that trespass against me. Platinum, delicate, and adorned with citrines that glint even in the dim light. The metalwork embossed with delicate filigree. It's beautiful. Much nicer than that opal bracelet of his ma's. Probably worth more, too. He turns it over in his hands. It's solid, and for a second he imagines it on Beth's arm. He wonders if she'd wear it over her scar or on her other wrist. Maybe she won't care so much anymore. Now. Now that they're past all that. I never cut my wrists for attention. He was such an ass. Such a fucking ass. And she was so fucking good to him. Good when he didn't deserve it. Good when he was bad. It's not too late to make it up to her. It can't be. Maybe this is a start. There's blood on two of the stones. He rubs at it, but it's dry and hard. And then he wonders why he's bothering. He thinks of giving it to her. Thinks of what she'll say. If she'll like it. Thinks of how it doesn't look anything like his ma's bracelet. He opens the car window and tosses it out onto the street. He hears it fall and roll, but he doesn't look. He ain't given Beth anything tainted like that. He doesn't care if he needs to spend the rest of his life looking. He'll find something worthy of his ma's opals to give to her. Not some piece of bling stolen from a house of horrors. Not an easy find of gaudy stones that don't suit her in any way. It ain't right. It ain't her. He drives off, hands still shaking, but not as badly. He tells himself it'll all be fine. He tells himself he'll come back and drop some food on the steps for Bessie. He tells himself that Joe and the rest won't loop back here. Yeah, he tells himself a lot of things. At the house, he has to force himself to bolt the gate and make sure it's done right, make sure it can't be broken, make sure all their makeshift alarms are in place, make sure it's safe, safe and secure and unbreachable. A part of him wishes that Beth was waiting for him on the steps, like she sometimes does, but he knows that's stupid. It's freezing. She's sick. And it's the middle of the night or something. Yeah. Something. It's selfish. And he ain't selfish. 
Another minute won't kill him. Although it just might. Beth, he shouts as he takes the steps two at a time and hurls himself through the door, trailing dirt and gore across the tiled entrance, hoping to find her wrapped in a blanket on the couch, reading by candlelight. The candles are there, but there's no sign of her. Beth, he calls again, dropping the crossbow and backpack on the ground and making his way into the lounge, into the light, into the warmth. It feels like coming home. It feels like how coming home should feel. He says her name one more time, and the panic wells up in him, suddenly sure she's gone. Again. Again and again and again, doomed to repeat this cycle over and over again, over and over, until he dies or goes insane. But he's already insane, so all that's left is death. But there she is, coming down the stairs, hair wet, skin still dewy from the shower, absently making to tie the baby blue terry cloth robe at her waist. Oblivious. Oblivious and beautiful and warm, and everything he needs. She stops when she sees him, blue eyes big and sparkling and terrifying, the ties of the robe falling from her hands. She's only wearing a very thin vest and a pair of panties underneath, and even he can see nearly every curve, every dent, every crease he barely notices. Beth. His voice is cracked and doesn't sound like his, but that's okay, because her name doesn't sound like hers. She takes him in for a second, and he wonders what she sees. His bloodied hands, the tremors, wild eyes, his darkness, his depravity, his lust. Daryl, she says, hurrying down the stairs, eyes wide. What? But he doesn't give her the chance to speak as the relief washes over him in a wave that threatens to drown him, leaves him gasping again. He doesn't remember making the decision to go to her. He remembers how his fingers flexed at his sides, how enormous her eyes were, how the candlelight hit her just so. But the decision? That's not there. Not there any more than the decision to breathe, for his heart to beat, for his insides to turn to a hot mess and his skin to burn under her gaze. His hands are on her, fingers digging into her hips, into the band of flesh where her vest and panties don't quite meet, and he's backing her into the wall his mouth hot on hers, his tongue demanding as he forces it between her lips, sliding it across her teeth, not caring that he's catching whatever it is that she has, not caring that he can tell there's a rough cough hiding in the back of her throat. She hesitates for a moment, her body rigid and taut, but then her eyes flutter and close as she opens her mouth to him, lips pliable and soft under his, skin smooth and warm as her body seems to mold to his, takes on his shape, takes on his name, takes on his doubts and ghosts and demons as he leans hard, so very hard, against her. And it feels like she's kissing the fear out of him, kissing the rage out of him, kissing the devil out of him, even as she fans the flames of the fire inside him. She's not gentle when her hands find their way into his hair, not in the slightest as she grips fiercely against his scalp, as she holds him fast and tight so that he can't move. Her tongue strokes against his, warm and wet, and he realizes suddenly that her need is almost as great as his. But it's been at least a good five months for her, says Zack. He pushes the thought away as his palms move from her hips to the satin skin of her smooth belly, fingers ghosting over the dent of her navel before sliding under the robe to rest in the small of her back, where her skin prickles, and he can feel her trembling through too many layers of clothing between them. Somehow, he can't remember how, because in this more familiar, though no less comforting, red fog of his mind, he can't concentrate on anything but the feel of her, the scent of her, the taste of her tongue in his mouth, 
but her arms are out of the robe, and it's lying in a puddle on the floor, touching his boots. Distractedly, he kicks it out of the way and wedges his knee between her legs. The movement jolts her, and she heaves a little against him, moaning into his mouth. And then her hands are on his shoulders, pushing hard at the fleece jacket. The sheep, he remembers, she calls it the sheep, although that's a ridiculous thing to remember right now, when her mouth is so hot and her body is so soft. He drops his hands from her so that the jacket can fall, struggling out of it, cursing into her mouth and making her giggle when his elbow gets stuck. It's not even on the floor when he grabs her thigh, hiking her leg over his hip and moving himself into that soft and sacred place that is all Beth and all heat and all desire. He's too tall and she's too short to hold this position for long, but he doesn't care as he digs his fingers into her, knowing he's being a little too rough, knowing it shouldn't be like this, and he should take things slower, not be so ungentle with her, not be so demanding. She's grasping at him too, his hair, his shoulders, the rough muscle of his biceps, her hands eventually snaking under his shirt, reaching for his belt buckle, fingers firm but soft, touching him where he's firm but certainly not soft. He groans, lifting her completely, wedging her between his body and the wall, pressing his weight against her as she locks her ankles firmly behind him. His eyes flicker to her neck, her pale shoulder, the thin strap of her vest, as he licks at her teeth, her lips, her tongue, trying to taste all of her at once, the sweetness of her mouth above the wild heat of her below. He wants to eat her, eat her from the inside out and then again from the outside in, burrow inside all her wetness, her softness, until all he knows is the shape of her, the smell of her, the taste of her. He's a little surprised by how matched they are as she kisses him back, how brazenly she sucks on his tongue, how it feels like she wants to swallow him whole even as he drowns in her. Doesn't know why he thought she'd be timid, though, why she'd be reticent. Maybe it has something to do with being afraid of unleashing the beast he keeps inside him. But she matches him, measure for measure, stroke for stroke, as the bare skin of her belly brushes against him, as she forces herself closer to him, and he can feel the hardness of her nipples through his sweater. The desire to take her immediately, right here, right now, with the cold wall against her back and the blood on his hands, is fierce and solid within him. So fierce that it makes him want to weep, so solid that it makes him want to scream, and he wishes he could slow it all down. But he can't. He doesn't know how. He never did. And with the smooth movement she uses to divest him of his belt, neither does she. His hand moving from her thigh to her breast is almost instinctual, another decision he doesn't remember making. And when she gasps into his mouth and shivers under his hand, he loses his head, loses his mind, loses his soul. He pushes closer to her, even though that shouldn't be possible, even though he should be suffocating her, and her hands are stuck painfully between them. He wants to touch her all at once, and not at all. Wants to savor her under his hands, and at the same time crawl his fingers over every inch of her, so that there's no part of her he doesn't know. When her hand slips under his waistband, smooth fingers trailing along his abdomen, he knows he'll either come right there like a teenage boy against her, or he'll fall to his knees in front of her, supplicant, submissive, content to worship her until the day he dies. He's not ready to do either, so he finds the strength to move his palm from her breast and bat her hands away from his groin. She's not so easily deterred, though, and seconds later her hands are back on him, one fisting in his hair, the other snaking under his sweater and vest beneath it, playing across his belly, stroking outwards to his hips and then back again, making his skin prickle and his blood boil. He tugs the strap off her shoulder, hand falling back to her thigh as he licks his way out of her mouth with long, smooth strokes that somehow seem to both satisfy and subdue her, 
and he trails his tongue across her cheek and then down the smooth line of her neck. He likes her ragged groan as her head tilts back and her hand starts traveling downwards again. He doesn't push her away when she touches him this time, a gentle brush of her knuckles on his jeans where his erection strains against his zipper, where his arousal is plainer than his emotions. He takes a moment to rest his forehead against her shoulder, close his eyes, let her touch him, to breathe in that clean smell of her, the perfume of the soap, the perfume of her flesh, and to believe that they can have this, that he can take her upstairs, lay her out on that bed, that he can have her, and she can have him. She could always have him. That wasn't even a question. Her hand lingers near his waistband again, and it feels like she's waiting for his permission. Feels like she's scared to take the chance again and be rejected. He ain't gonna reject her. Daryl, she whispers, and her voice is throaty and deep. And he knows what she's asking. Knows she wants his okay. Knows she wants him to guide her. Which means she's out of her fucking mind because he needs more guidance than she'll ever need. Either way, he bites down gently on her shoulder, sucking briefly at the pale skin, and opens his eyes. Later, he'll tell himself it was because of the small cough she let out at that moment, or the fact that he realized just how cold she must be, pushed up mostly naked against the cold wall. Later, he'll tell himself it was a decision he came to logically and pragmatically. A good decision. A wise decision. A responsible decision. It's none of those things. It's visceral and raw, and him getting in his own way. It's the voices in his head and the rage in his heart, and the fear in every cell. But when he glances down at his hand, his hand that's gripping her thigh, his hand that he intends to move to hers and use to guide her fingers to him, all he can see is the roughness of his marked skin, his tattooed flesh against the whiteness of her smooth thigh, the blood from his hand rubbing off on her in a dirty smear. Then he stops. And suddenly, the idea of his marked body on hers seems obscene. Indecent. Daryl, she breathes. Do you... Her voice trails off. And her hands relax. Still. It's like she's waiting for him to pull away. And he does. Harshly. A few steps backwards, and he's nearly flush with the front door. He tries not to look at her. Look at her standing there, semi-naked. But he can't. She's all legs, legs and hard nipples and reddened lips. And he knows in that moment she'll take him to her bed, give him her flesh, give him her fucking soul if that's what he wants. He knows he'll take all of it, too, give her back his own. But that ain't a fair trade. Ain't fair at all, because a few pieces of chipped glass ain't a fair trade for diamonds. And lead me not into temptation. Sorry, he mumbles. He takes another step back, eyes fixed on the floor. She doesn't move except for the gentle rise and fall of her chest, her breath almost as ragged as his. He can't look at her. Can't even think of her standing there, naked enough that it doesn't matter that she's not. He knows that if he does, it'll be over. He won't resist. He starts to ask himself why he's resisting, but shuts that voice down. Are you okay? She asks, and her eyes are on his bloody arm, but he knows she isn't asking about it. He grunts. Grunts because he's B-sterile again. B-sterile who has no words. Because he's a dick. Because he's a fool. An uneducated piece of white trash who can't keep his fucking hands to himself. Daryl, she starts again, and suddenly his head in the house and the whole fucking world is just too goddamn small for this. 
to go to Beth Green, you must go with perfect courage. He manages to tell her the meds are in the backpack before he lets the front door bang behind him as he rushes outside, back into the night, where he belongs, where it's safe, where he can take his chances with the dead rather than the living. It turns out it's nothing near as dramatic. He walks through the cold, checking the walls for holes, knowing there are none, knowing because he checked before he went to bed. He checks the gate a few times, the chain, the alarms. They're all fine, like he knew they were. For the second time tonight, he wants a cigarette, fiercely, but he doesn't want to go inside any of the houses. He wants to be cold, cold and angry, cold so that the taste of her freezes on his mouth, numb so that his hands don't remember the feel of her, the shape of her. He ends up sitting on the porch, chewing on his thumb, biting down, wanting to draw blood. More blood. He can hear her inside. She sounds like she's washing dishes, which is ridiculous. He wishes she'd go back to bed, go to sleep. And then what? asks his ma. Then you go inside, and then what? She's right. Ain't like either of them can leave, even if they wanted to. Which he doesn't. So he sits, and he waits, and he waits, and he sits, and he breathes. And he stabs the steps with his knife a few times. And his blood eventually stops running out of him. And he sees the faintest hint of dawn breaking through the night sky. And he knows the day will be as cold as the night. And he shivers. He's not surprised when he hears the door open behind him, and she comes to sit next to him on the step, leaning against him slightly for a second that warms him before angling herself away and pulling his bloody arm into her lap. He chances a glance at her. She's dressed, which ain't exactly a surprise, not like he expected her to come out here in her underwear. Simple sweatpants and a zipped-up hoodie, those oversized tatty-teddy socks on her feet, and he thinks they're cute. She catches his gaze and gives him a small smile before he looks away, blinking rapidly, wishing she'd go back inside, wishing he didn't have to be near her, wishing she didn't have to be so goddamn kind and sweet and understanding. But... But she's Beth. Your blue-eyed girl, says his ma. Not now, ma, he thinks, resting his head against the railing of the porch. Really, ma, not now. She rolls his sleeve up slowly and traces the wound as he tries not to curl his fingers against her inner thigh. She doesn't ask how he got the bite, or even if he's infected. And he realizes just how much she trusts him in that second, how she knows that if it was a walker bite, he'd never have put her in any danger. It makes him feel better and like a bigger dick all at once. She's brought bandages and antiseptic liquid, a bottle of hot water. She cleans the mark quietly, efficiently, smoothing the dirt and muck out of the gouges. He looks at it. It'll scar. But what's one more? He hisses slightly when she applies the antiseptic liquid, but she blows on it softly, and his skin prickles under her breath. He bites hard on his lip until he can taste blood but it does nothing to ease the ache in his groin, in his mouth, in his heart. He looks at her bowed head, the hair she scraped back into a messy bun, the cool, soothing fingers wrapped around his wrist, her pink lips forming a perfect O as she eases the pain with the air from her lungs. And he wants to draw her to him, not like before, not all fire and passion and the red fog that makes him lose his mind, but just for the comfort of having her next to him, against him, the way she fits him. And he her. He shakes that thought away. He doesn't fit her. Doesn't fit with anyone other than his demons. 
She doesn't look at him as she winds the bandage around his arm and tests it for firmness before tying it off tightly and pulling his sleeve down again. She keeps her hand gently on his arm as she moves the bloodied cloth and antiseptic liquid behind them. And he can't bring himself to move. And then she settles against him, resting her head on his arm and gripping her fingers in her own. He thinks she turns her head to kiss the ridge of his shoulder, and he looks away, blinking tears out of his eyes. He thought she'd be angry. He thought she'd be hurt. He should know better by now. She's Beth. Always Beth. It's always been Beth. They watch the sunrise in silence, and he bends his arm awkwardly to hold her head against his shoulder, feeling the cool yet clammy skin of her cheek against his palm. It's bleak and cold, and he thinks longingly of his jacket inside. But that makes him think of how it got there, and he can't do that. Because underneath the embarrassment, underneath the fear and the self-sabotage, there's that moment where he remembers how sweet and soft she felt under his hands, and it makes him want her all the more. So he just keeps his hand on her face, her thigh pressed against his, the smell of her filling him up in the god-awful light of the dawn. The wind picks up again, and she coughs softly, and it's like a cord leading him back to reality. Should be inside, Beth, he says without looking at her. It's cold, and you need to sleep. So do you, she whispers. He nods, but doesn't move. Come, she says easing away from him and standing up. It's a moment before he takes her hand and lets her lead him back into the house. And he follows, because he's powerless not to, because he can't say no, because despite what he tells himself, he wants this. More than anything. And he wonders if it's too late now, too late to touch her face, too late to press his lips to hers, too late to get that moment back. They step over his jacket and belt. They ignore her robe. They don't look at the smear of blood against the wall from his hand. He lets her lead him up the stairs into the bedroom, still lit with candles guttering in their holders, lets her push him onto the bed and then kneel between his legs to pull his boots off. He watches her, not even uncomfortable at this picture they're making of her crouching between his spread legs. He's aroused, and again he knows she's noticed, but he's too tired, too overwhelmed to care. He doesn't even try to stop her when she pulls his sweater off, leaving him in his vest. And then she's pushing him down onto the mattress, and for an insane moment he thinks she'll straddle him right then and there. But she doesn't. Instead, she slides in next to him, pulling the blankets up high until they tickle his chin. Thanks for the meds, she whispers. It's all right. She's quiet next to him, and he chews his bottom lip, sucking it into his mouth and popping it out while he stares at the invisible patterns on the ceiling. He knows they should sleep. But he's overtired, and also overstimulated, not just by Beth, but by this whole fucking night. He doesn't want to sleep. Can't sleep. So he starts talking, telling her about Bessie in halted sentences, keeping his voice low. She lets him. Doesn't interrupt, doesn't ask questions. Just waits for him to finish. And when he does, when he tells her how he threw that damn bracelet out of the car, he turns to her and reaches across the bed to take her hand, drawing it to his lips and planting a kiss on her knuckles. She tells him she wants to go back to the house, see Bessie, and he nods because he knew this is what she would want. He tells her he wants to put some food aside, leave it for her, but that they can't go in, not unless they're invited, and she agrees, brow furrowing slightly when he kisses her hand again. He wonders if he's gone too far now, if this, this kissing her hand, is presumptuous, 
as if his earlier kisses weren't. But then she pulls their linked hands away from his mouth and towards hers and presses her lips against his flesh, mouth moving gently over his fingers, the back of his hand, the crook of his thumb, before settling back down against her pillow and using her fingertips to trace the sinew and muscle under his skin in a slow rhythm that she doesn't know has him digging his free hand into the mattress to stay sane. He thinks she'll say something about Bessie, something about things he should have done, something about how he messed up earlier, but she doesn't. Instead, she tells him she likes his ink as she outlines the dragon on his arm and then the star on his hand. She says there's something about his tattoos that tell his story, that show her who he really is, and that's beautiful, because he's beautiful. And doesn't he know that? Didn't she tell him enough? And he knows what she's saying, though she didn't miss the way he looked at her pale thigh and the bloodied marks his stained hands left on her downstairs. Knows she didn't miss the reason he pulled away. I'm sorry, he whispers, and he means it. Don't, she tells him. So he doesn't. Shadows flicker on the walls. She touches his hand, traces the outline of the star one more time, and then moves to the heart on his wrist. It's beautiful, she says, and suddenly he has a desire to show it all to her, all his ink, all his marks, all his scars. She's seen his back, he knows she has. When you live in each other's pockets and it's too dangerous to take a piss by yourself, you see things. They both tried to be decent about it, but he knew she'd seen the one morning when he'd gone to wash himself off in the river. There's no way she could have missed it, because she was standing right there when he turned around, water lapping at his hips. Neither of them had said anything. She just handed him his shirt, eyes big, but downcast, and gone about packing the camp. It was the morning after they'd burned down the shack, and they were both still raw and overwhelmed, and hungover, and neither of them wanted to do anything to upset their newly found fragile camaraderie. But this is different. Different because he wants to show her now. Wants to show her the good marks, the tattoos she likes so much, as well as the bad. He wants to be completely honest with her after today, after the run, after what happened downstairs. He doesn't, though. Not yet. Not when everything is so fragile and the want and need in him is so great. Not that he plans on stripping off right there or anything, pulling off the vest and going, Hey Beth, check it out. But for the first time in his life, he wants to tell someone how they got there. Tell her about his ma and her wine, and his old man, and his belt. Tell her about Merle, and his leaving. He wonders how she would respond, but he knows already. Because if she can respond like this, after what happened downstairs, he knows he's totally safe. That no matter what he says, she'll be that soft landing for him. That cocoon he can lose himself in. She asks him about the dragon and the star. He tells her the star hurt like hell because the guy that did it didn't know what he was doing, but the dragon was alright, mostly ticklish more than painful. She says she likes it again. Likes the way he has marks that he chose to put there because he wanted them. She also says she likes his scars, but she touches his side where the arrow went through him, so he knows he doesn't need to talk about the others. She likes his sinew, too, but mostly she likes the ink. It's sexy, she tells him with a mischievous grin. Hot. And he blushes like an idiot and tells her to be quiet and go to sleep. And she does, her breathing even, her coughing intermittent. He knows it's just the symptoms being covered, but it's enough for now. And just as he's drifting off, she rolls into his arms, fixing herself against his chest, small hand fisted in the cotton of his vest. 
He kisses her hair, and she mumbles something as he wraps his arms around her and pulls her close. She looks up at him sleepily, a dopey smile on her face, no doubt exhaustion and meds hard at work. Am I good to you, Beth? He asks, touching her jaw. She frowns, even as her eyes droop, and she looks confused. And then she snuggles against him again, and just as he's about to fall asleep, he swears he hears her tell him that he's a silly man. A very silly man. And he guesses that's the most accurate and sensible thing either of them have said or done all night. The ground is red with blood, red and stinking, and even in the cold he can smell it. Smell the coppery tang as it fills his nostrils, and it makes him want to retch. Maggie, however, is already retching, somewhere near the fence. Rick and Carl and Michonne stand a few feet away from her, looking at him accusingly until he snaps out of it and goes to her side and holds her hair out of the way. She vomits again, then he rubs her back. I'm okay, she says, but he knows she's not. None of them are. Abraham and Bob are moving bodies, and even though he thought himself stronger than this, his stomach heaves again at the carnage. They couldn't have done this alone, couldn't have gotten out by themselves. And it's amazing that Carol and Tyrese showed up when they did, fate or something. Couldn't have done it without them. And yet Rick's expression is concerned, and Maggie could barely look at Carol when she arrived, and he doesn't know why. Too many secrets. Too many losses in this group. They're broken again. As broken as they were the night the green farm burned to the ground. Eventually Maggie straightens, and he wraps an arm around her as they look out at Terminus. What now? he asks. Now we make it a home, she says. You want to stay here? Here? Where they ate people? We stayed in a prison, she answers. Our standards ain't exactly high. She has a point. Beggars can't be choosers, he shrugs. No, she says, looking at Carol. No, they can't. Okay, so I will confess that while I was scanning through this chapter trying to figure out how the hell I could break it in two pieces without completely mutilating every part of it, I did see at the very end that Team Family makes a reappearance. So I wasn't flailing as much as I would have been, I think, if I hadn't seen it coming. But I'm still flailing because that's super exciting and I'm super happy to see them again. <laughs> okay, sorry, fine. Uh, honestly, when I, uh, you know, was, was starting to get in the fandom and hear about this fic and knew that, okay, it was one of those fics that people read and talk about. And yeah, it's one of those fics. I thought that given the, what the premise was, that this was just going to be Beth and Daryl, and that we weren't really going to... I mean, we might see some new characters like Bessie, and other characters might pop in like Joe, but we weren't really going to... We weren't going to see Team Family again. Because a lot of these fics, I think, are tell stories where, you know, Daryl and Beth just go off together and never find Team Family again, and are fine together, because that's great, and, you know, I think that's something we all thought could maybe happen after, you know... Well, before she got taken in alone, but while they were still super happy at the funeral home. So, this is exciting. I'm, I'm happy because this is a cool wrinkle, and I can't wait to see where it goes. And also, oh my fucking god, Mel, stop writing such hot porn. Oh, so good. And I'm picky. You know I'm picky. I have high standards for porn. Alright, anyway. Uh, yeah.
Safe Up Here With You by Dynamic Symmetry Chapter 6 From the Slippery Hands to the Line of Your Throat All at once it's hot. Not as hot as it's been. Not as hot as it could be. Not as hot as so many of their days together before those days ended, when they slogged through the woods and across fields and alongside roads before they turned away again. He remembers the sweat was endless. The air was sweat. They swam through it, and the only relief they got was rain and the occasional cooler night, and the times when they found a body of water large enough and clean enough to bathe in. Bathe being a very generous term for what they did. It was barely rinsing. Fast, very cursory, done as soon as they could. Taking turns, taking watch. Moments of intense vulnerability that had to be as few in number as possible. Never entirely naked. He never wanted her to see him. Tried to trust her to look away. Tried to tell himself that she would. She wouldn't see the scars. She wouldn't think about them and wonder, and maybe, some night when something broke in her, ask him about them. She never did. And it doesn't matter now. He never looked at her. His stomach twisted when, once, briefly, he thought about doing so. Not even that he wanted to. Not that it was an urge. Just the possibility occurred to him. That he might. That she might not see him doing it. That he might get away with it. He thought about it, and it felt bad, wrong, so he didn't think about it again. And now it's hot. He leads her out the front door and out toward the road, crossbow slung across his back. The space up here is small, far too small to accommodate any real game. Only the house and the overgrown garden surrounding it, and a few hundred yards or so of trees before it all drops sharply away into a slope too steep and rocky for most things to climb. The road is the only way up or down that's at all practical, and further down the ground off the road will level out a bit. The slopes ease, and they'll be able to cover some of it. There might be deer, rabbits. Squirrels could be anywhere, but he'd rather do better than squirrel, if that's possible. She follows him in silence, and again he thinks of that time. It's almost comfortable. About a quarter of a mile down, she's still trailing him, and he pauses and looks back and waits for her. It's not that he thinks she's going to wander off, not exactly, but if she's coming along, he's for damn sure going to keep her in sight. Knife in her belt. He can't stop looking at it. They stayed there for a little while, no more than about ten minutes, and when she released him and he looked up at her, she had gone blank again. Stared dully at him like she had said nothing, done nothing, like he'd simply given her the knife and that had been that. Which the more realistic parts of him had expected. So he scrubbed his face with his hand and stood up, shook himself, put it all away. But it was something, that moment with her. Another few minutes and it didn't even feel real, didn't feel like it happened at all. But it did, and it was something. And when he picked up the bow and she came to him dressed with her boots on, slid the knife smoothly onto her belt, that was something as well. She has it. He doesn't have to carry it anymore. So regardless of the heat and the fact that he senses something in her has left him, he feels light. You gotta stick close, he says quietly when she reaches him, and she glances up at him. There's no clear sign of comprehension anywhere to be seen there, and he's wondering if she even registered the words. But then she nods, once, slowly, and he nods back and tries not to be too obviously relieved. And if he's honest, it feels better having her with him. Maybe it's not safe, but the house isn't safe either. Nothing is safe, and at least this way he knows what she's doing, what's happening. 
He doesn't have any more control like this, but it feels like he does. All these little somethings. It's quiet for a while. Quiet between them, and that's also familiar, and not just from the last few days. When they were together before, there wasn't much talking. Even after things got better, there wasn't a whole lot of it. And when there was, she did most of it. But like this, her walking beside him and the endlessly varied calls of mockingbirds echoing through the trees and off exposed rock, the lower coos of the morning doves, wind in the leaves and stirring the branches, he can almost take himself back there. Pretend nothing changed. Pretend they stayed together and she was never taken, and they never found the others, and it was just them. Just kept being that way. That would have been just fine. How long were we out there? He jerks his head up, attention yanked back to her. Because she said anything at all, because it came out of nowhere, and cut through what was admittedly becoming an actual honest-to-God fantasy and a fairly vivid one, but mostly because, once again, it sounds like her, like the closest he's heard yet to the Beth he lost. And in fact, it's so intense that for a few vertiginous seconds he thinks maybe everything else was the fantasy, that they really did stay together, that everything after that night... Nightmare, hallucination, alternate universe, whatever, not real. Never real. Then he focuses on her face, on the scars slashed across it, and on the little pale starburst in her brow, and he knows. But she still spoke. She still asked him. Out where? He knows that, too, or he's fairly sure he does, but she's talking, and he wants her to talk more. You know, after the prison. How long? He shakes his head. Never knew. A week? Two? Could have been. It was all just days. Day after day after day, every single one the same, until something changed, and none of them were the same anymore, and then... He just hadn't known. Could have been three weeks, for all he recalls. Could have been a month. He was with her for a while. That's all he's ever been sure of when it comes down to time. A while. I don't remember. She sounds distant, but not because she's going away. She sounds distant in the way people do when they're trying to remember. It just... It felt like a long time. Yeah, it did. I remember... She tilts her head back and looks up at the sky, a hard steel blue, and he watches her. Watches her face, this face he sometimes feels like he hardly knows, and other times can't bear to look at because the sheer force of his knowing is like a fist in his gut. There was this moment... I don't know if it was a moment... Maybe it took a while, but I sort of... It wasn't like I stopped wanting to find the others. I mean, I thought we would find them, eventually. Maggie and Glenn and Rick and Carl and Judith, Michonne, Tyrese and Sasha, Bob, everyone. But I... I didn't worry about it, you know? She turns her gaze on him and it's almost too much. Because she's very close to smiling, faint and dreamy, but so much her... And he never thought he would see that smile again. I was okay with how things were. It was all right. Just... Just being out there. With you. He swallows, very hard, and manages a nod. But no words. God, no fucking words at all. How the fuck is he ever supposed to speak again? How is he supposed to walk now? To move? To breathe? He can't just get her back. It can't be that easy. What happened to them? I... They... Somehow. Somehow words. He ducks his head, looks down, looks away, looks at anything but her. She's asking. She cares enough to ask, but he has no idea how he's supposed to tell her. What he's supposed to say. 
what she'll say when he does. Found him. We, we went north. D.C. almost. Found a place. He shrugs. And here are the names of the dead. Here are the people you'll never see again. Truly never see again. And it was all for nothing. Safe, I guess. For a given value, safe. She nods, once again slow. Thoughtful. And for a while she's quiet again, and he's ready to let it lie, at least for the present. In significant part because he's not sure what else to ask her. Not sure what else to say. His throat is tight, and his mouth is working slightly, everything tense, and also so close to tumbling, falling apart, when she says the next thing, and slashes the lungs out of him. How did you die? It takes him a very long moment to figure out what she's just asked him. She doesn't fill that moment. She lets it be, waits for him to fill it himself. She still seems very calm, and now a little distracted, watching two squirrels chase each other through the branches overhead, screeching and hissing, and he simply circles the question and gapes at it, as flatly bewildered as he's ever been since he brought her up here. But then... I knew you'd go to hell, everything you've done. At least you're with me. I didn't. Yes, you did. You're here. I didn't, Beth. She shakes her head and shoots him a look that's more pitying than anything else. Why are you lying to yourself like this? Why don't you just accept it? His jaw tightens even more. It hurts. Because it ain't true. Maybe we never made it out of the prison. She looks back at the road, brow furrowed, again merely thoughtful. Maybe that was when it happened. We made it out. How are you so sure? Because I fucking am. It takes him a few seconds to realize he's stopped. Another to realize he's grabbed her by the wrist, yet another to realize he was very close to shouting at her. She's staring up at him with dim surprise. He blinks, wavers, sucks in air and stares down at her slim wrist in his hand, his hold so tight his knuckles have gone pale. He has to be hurting her, but she's just standing there. His hand spasms open, and he nearly recoils, as if she's burned him, and she has. His palm stings. Her wrist is pale where he was gripping it, pale in the prints of his fingers. Then, as he watches, the blood rushes back in and the outlines darken. And he knows, without having to wait to see it, that he's bruised her. He never did that before. Even at the shack, even what he did then, he didn't leave a mark on her. Not that she ever let him see. She stares down at her wrist, her expression all vague puzzlement. She's not angry. She doesn't seem to be in any pain whatsoever. She just doesn't understand. He almost stumbles back, almost falls. He never said he was sorry, is the thing. Never said it. Tried to say it so many other ways. Tried to show her every day, but I'm sorry never felt like enough. Felt like it would be an insult, so he never did. He hoped, God, he believed, he did, that she knew he was. And he told himself he would never do anything like that to her again. Never so much as raise his voice to her. He told himself that. Made himself swear, over and over. Made himself swear on all the names of the people he still believed were dead, because he knew there wasn't a God in heaven, and nothing else to swear by. Nothing else that meant anything. He swore, and even as he's watching her now, he'd swear he can see the bruise forming. Beth. Rustling in the undergrowth behind him, and her head snaps up, everything about her sharpening into almost bestial alertness, razor-edged. 
Daryl is already half-turning, the horror he's just committed briefly and mercifully forgotten, and he's about to draw the bow and investigate when she tears past him, moving with alarming speed, her strides long and graceful, and her hair flying around her head, her knife unsheathed and winking in the sun. He opens his mouth to tell her to fucking stop, I told you, and then she's gone into the trees. More rustling further in the distance. Could be small, could be large. The sound is getting thrown around, and it's difficult to tell. Cursing lavishly, battling fear and despair and weariness so deep it almost overwhelms the first two, he swings the bow heavily into his hands and follows her. He doesn't know how long they were out there together. What he did learn, and he learned it quickly, was that she's fast. Faster than you'd think to look at her. And one would probably assume a considerable degree of speed just looking at her legs, their relative length, their power. She runs, leaps and bounds through shrubs and trees, dodging and almost dancing over roots and uneven patches of ground. The slopes are gentle, but they're still slopes, and she's running parallel along the top, little flashes of her through the trunks and dappled light, arms pumping, chasing, he doesn't know what, faster than a walker, anyway, faster, and he's almost positive, larger than just about any walker would be. He slings the bow back over his shoulder and keeps pace behind her, slightly higher up, She's swifter than he is, but she's a sprinter. She'll tire. He can just keep going. She's not making any effort to hide her trail. If he loses sight of her, it should be easy enough to track her. He bruised her, and now he's thinking about hunting her like an animal. This is going great so far. Beth! Probably does no good to call to her. Probably wouldn't even reach her. She wouldn't have run at all if she was fully with him. But he calls anyway, and the name rakes across his throat like he's already been running for miles. She doesn't so much as glance in his direction. But there's a flash of white in the distance, and he can see what she saw and what she's chasing. Deer, white-tailed, bounding along at a speed that should have been too much for her to match. But she is, and it takes him only another couple of seconds to see why. Those bounds are uneven. The deer, a small doe, is injured already, limping. Now and then it stops and wobbles, takes a few uncertain steps, runs again. At this pace, she might actually catch it before she exhausts herself. Beth, stop! But should she? Should she stop? Her brain is the same panting chaos as the rest of him, scrambling and unable to focus or process anything except what's right in front of him and what it might mean in the next few minutes. But some part of it is still removed and retaining enough higher-level reasoning to see her and think about what's happened and what it's been like, and consider the possibility that this is exactly the kind of thing she needs. Running, sun, air, her body being used and used well. Being fully in herself, in the moment she occupies. Running like she could before, and even when the days were bad and they were running for all the wrong reasons, she was so beautiful when she ran. She's so beautiful now. So he stops calling her. He just pursues, watches her, watches the deer, feels his own body, the pump of his blood and the flex of his muscles, the pain in his arm nowhere near as bad as he had feared, though it's sure as hell not comfortable, and how he's also here, sun on his face and arms, the cooler rush of air drying the sweat on his skin, the breath in his lungs, his heart. He didn't die. He made it. She has to see. She has to see now. Walkers don't run. Further down the slope, and it's continuing to flatten out, but the ground is also becoming more treacherous. It's clear that this area is subject to considerably more erosion, and protruding rocks are scattered everywhere, lifted roots waiting to hook a foot and wrench or break an angle. He has to slow, 
has to watch his footing, but so does Beth, and so does the deer, and he knows it's going to happen seconds before it does. The deer attempts to leap across a jagged stone line, fails to get enough height, strikes its leg against the edge with a crack, bizarrely loud, and crumples with a rough, honking cry, thrashing in the leaves. Beth is barely yards away, slowing, knife up and shining, little predator ready to make a kill. And the walker staggers out from behind the tree. Long strings of slimy brown hair, face half hanging off the skull and eyes rolling, tongue lolling. It should go for the deer. It should go for the easier prey. God, it should. That's what's going to save her, because he's struggling to get the bow into his hands, and it's so much harder than it should be. His fingers abruptly thick and clumsy. He's too slow. He's too fucking slow. But the deer, the deer will... The walker wavers, hissing, turns and seems to consider something, and begins shambling toward Beth. All of this happens in a fraction of a second. He still doesn't have the bow up. He's still running. He can't get good aim while running. Beth has skidded to a stop, staring, head slightly cocked and knife lowered, and the walker is less than three feet away from her. Two. He's going to watch her die all over again. And this time she isn't coming back. He screams, and it's wordless and horrible, like it's him about to be ripped apart, except if he was, he knows he wouldn't scream at all. Would just let go under it. And just as he's ready to stop and aim anyway and take down the thing that killed her, Beth snaps the knife up and buries it in the walker's eye and jerks it free. The thing falls with a gurgle and lies still. And she merely stands, knife still raised, head cocked again, and he knows without being able to make out her expression that she's once more merely puzzled. He does stop. Has to. Stops and drops the bow, bends over his knees, carves breaths out of the air. Nausea rocks him, grabs his head and feet and wrings him out. Sheer terror, sheer and awful helplessness. Because maybe he can't save her. Maybe he never could. Maybe she has to save herself. He gets her to help him carry the deer back. It is, again, not a large deer, and it could be a much bigger ordeal, and it doesn't go quickly or easily, but he's thankful at least that she's there. He went to her after, went to her, and tried not to grab her by the arms, shake her, shout at her again, pull her against him, and hold on so tight her bones ground together. Instead, he put an arrow through the twitching deer's skull, turned to her, told her he needed her to help him. Needed her. She gazed silently up at him, and he could see that she was sufficiently there to understand. Together they lifted the carcass and began to haul it out of the woods. He's doing a lot of thinking as they approach the road, none of it along pleasant lines. They're fairly far down from the house, a good couple of miles, and it was just the one. Since they got here, he's seen almost no walkers at all except the ones in town, and the vast majority of them appear to be locked into the inexplicable pen behind the grocery store. Unless they finally push the fence down in their eagerness to get at him, they're still there. He doesn't want to, but he should go down and verify, from as much of a distance as he can. Just the one. And near the house, the ground is almost impassable except for the road. The house isn't particularly secure in and of itself, but the location. But even one. Even one. He keeps being a fucking idiot. He's going to get both of them killed. There are any number of things that could do that, but at this rate, it's going to be specifically him. They're soaked with sweat, and his arm is back to shrieking pain by the time they reach the house, and he calls a halt and drops the deer in the drive right in front of the door. Not ideal. Really, really not fucking ideal. 
but nothing is ideal, and he doesn't have time to get to dressing the thing now. He has another job to do, and he can't wait. He does take her by the shoulders, doesn't grab. Careful, gentle as he can be, tired and hurting and freaked out as he is. He lays his hands on her, frames her, and she looks up at him with her wide, blue, calm gaze, and he wonders if she even knows what she did. He tries very hard to not look at her wrist. I gotta go back to town, all right? You understand what I'm saying? Her brows knit, and he can already tell that, yes, she does understand, and she's about to demand that he take her along, but he keeps going, runs right over her, because he thinks he understands a little of it now, what's driving her when it comes to this, and even if she threatened to open her veins over it, it doesn't originate in the place that's certain she's dead. It comes from the place that wants to stay alive. He can take it, hold on to it, manipulate it, manipulate her, and it makes him feel like a piece of shit. I need you to stay here. I know you don't want to, and I don't want to leave you, but I need that. I still need you. I gotta get in and out fast, and I'll do that better if it's just me. When I get back, I'm gonna need your help, and we're gonna have to move fast then, too. I can't do this without you. He gives her a little squeeze. All right? She hesitates, her face a frowning mask of displeasure. But at last she nods, and everything in him loosens the slightest bit. Unless her mind collapses in the most utterly complete way possible, she'll still be here when he gets back, and all her blood will still be pumping through her veins. All right. But he doesn't let go of her. Not right away. He just looks at her, her hair windblown around her face, her cheeks and neck still flushed with effort, her skin glistening and shirt sticking to her, revealing the lines of her body, revealing how much thinner she is than when he last saw her. And she was thin then. And she's so strong, and she's so fragile, and he releases her shoulders and cups her burning face in his hands. Girl, I won't leave you. No matter what you do to me. Not ever. You could cut my fucking heart out and eat it in front of me, and I would still never leave you. She does nothing. She just looks at him. But her eyes aren't flat. All at once, it's as if they spring from two dimensions to three, and it's so sudden it almost unbalances him, almost tosses his hands away. She always saw him like this, so clear, before. He hated it, and then he thought maybe he loved it, and now he has no idea. He has no idea what she's seeing. Maybe he shouldn't be doing this, touching her now. Maybe this isn't right. Because there's that line. He doesn't know what it is or why it's there, but it's there, and he's standing right at the edge of it, and a part of him he's barely cognizant of is whispering that if he steps across it, there won't be any going back. Ever. She raises her hands and covers his. They're small, soft as they were on his face back in the house, in what feels like another lifetime, and against all sense they're cool. Cool and dry. There are some things he could say, if he had any idea what the fuck they were. I'll be back in an hour. He takes a breath and slides his hands out from under hers. Swear. An hour. He steps back, clenching, releasing, taking whatever just happened and shoving it under the pile of rocks it feels like his bones have become. When he allowed himself to slip into this, something like this, down there, it almost got him killed. Almost got them both killed. Can't. Not again. Not now. Later. Maybe. He nods down at her knife, mostly clean and once more sheathed at her hip. Stay at the house. Keep that on you. Anything shows up that ain't me, you put it down. 
No hesitation this time. She nods. It's still her. Please be here. When I come back, please be with me. He turns and heads to the bike, kicks it into a roar, leaves her. Not like last time. He's not exploring. One thing and one thing only, and thank Christ for that because it's simple, and he has a couple of relatively simple backup plans. He needs to hit one place and one place only, and it's right off the central road they took through. Town's still quiet in the heat of late afternoon. Except faintly, and he's not sure how he missed this before, he can hear groans and hisses and the rattle of chain link. Very possibly they'd gone docile before he waltzed through that door and woke them up. Very possibly they'll go docile again if he gives them long enough. At least, as far as he can tell, they're still confined. He doesn't go down that street. He moves on past it, past the pharmacy, toward the hardware store a few more blocks down. The big front window is smashed, glass everywhere, but inside the mess is minimal. Not too many things missing, not too much scattered in the aisles, and no sign of walkers. And along the wall at the back, he finds exactly what he's looking for. Loops of razor wire, 50 feet. He grabs two. Back toward the front, two pairs of sufficiently thick gloves, extending most of the way up the forearm. Back to the bike. And back up. It's all a blur. He was aware of looking, finding, picking up. Now speed in the roar of the bike beneath him. He's the machine now, and his sole function is to keep them as safe as he can. Even if that's safe is a bad joke, that means nothing in the end. Doesn't matter. He needs to do things. He can do this. He can ask her to help him, and she will. And that might be how he brings her back. She's still there. He pulls the bike to a halt in the drive, cuts the engine, but he doesn't climb off. Doesn't move. The world has settled into a hot, sleepy late afternoon, all cicada buzz and only the faintest breeze, the birds too sluggish to sing. Somehow it's the buzz of the cicadas that makes it as bad as it is, like a cloud of distant flies, a plague. They fill his head as he stares at her, hands numb, lips numb, and the sound flows from his brain all the way down to his feet and numbs everything else. He's the remnants of a thing that used to move. He's been amputated from himself. He's a ghost limb. She's there, kneeling in front of the deer carcass, bent over, arms smeared red up past the elbows and glistening in the sun. The front of her shirt is soaked in it, chunks of flesh here and there. It's stripped into her lap, spattered her jeans. It's everywhere. It's all over her. He told her she should bathe. She has. She lifts her head, pushes herself up. The ends of her hair have stuck together, congealed into brown spikes. Red all over her throat, her cheeks, her nose, her lips. She's chewing. She swallows, flashes him a quick smile with teeth like rubies. Hi, Daryl. She gestures at the carcass, at the torn throat, the flank, hide slashed and peeled back, and corded muscle and pale fat carved away. Bitten. Nod. Come on. There's plenty for you. Later, he'll have no idea how he did it. He'll have no idea how he did anything. Remembering it will be like watching himself from the outside, like watching someone else, watching a movie, getting off the bike, going to her, bending, taking her hands in his, taking that blood onto his skin, gentle, keeping his voice low, 
telling her she'd had enough. He had to get the thing undercover, or it might get taken by something else. Someone else. Her nodding as if this made total sense, letting him tug her to her feet, direct her inside, telling her to go into the bathroom and wait for him. Her, docile again, doing as he said, not questioning him, not resisting, not fighting. Blood all over the doorknob, her back, her swinging crimson hands and forearms, like she herself was skinned, like she took that knife and took it all off, left it in a pile by the deer. The fucking deer. He drags it away. He drags it to the lower ground just beside and under the deck, where the drop is just as sheer, and he shoves it over and watches it fall. It hits one of the rocky juts, bounces. The crunch of bone is audible as its ribcage caves in. A hundred feet further down, it hits the boulders that line the bottom of the cliff and bursts. Breaks open like a balloon of blood and gut, splatters over that pale, pristine rock. That's what it would be like. That's what would happen if it was him. If it was her. He doesn't vomit. He doesn't because he makes himself not do it. Because he won't. Because he signed on for this and he shouldn't be surprised. Shouldn't be shaken. Should just accept. She did this. It was always coming. And just thank a god who can't possibly be anywhere near this that it wasn't him lying there instead of the deer. Throat ripped open and her feeding on him. Except she would never do that, would she? Attack him. Try to hurt him. Try to kill him, sure. She might. But she wouldn't try to feed on him. He's dead, too. They're both dead. Together. He goes into her, and she's waiting in the bathroom just like he asked her to. He didn't specify, but she went into the big bathroom off the master bedroom, which they've both been using. She's sitting there on the clean white tile, and it's not clean anymore. It's smeared far more than it should be with just the movements of her body, far more than that could account for. And the smears are loops and swirls that look intentional, and that's when he realizes she's been finger-painting. He crouches. He does this because he does it, because he will. Still need you to help me. Can you? She nods, lifts a bloody hand and looks down at it, turns it this way and that, moves her fingers through the air in graceful, waving patterns. She seems fascinated by herself, entranced, enthralled. She was never a child to him. He looks at her now, under the blood, under what she's done to herself, and the outward evidence of what she believes she is, and that's what he sees. He uses one of the fluffy white towels taken from a cabinet at the far end of the room and water from the sink. He half-heartedly wipes off her face, her hands, does what he can with her arms. There's nothing to be done about her shirt, her jeans. He won't even try. It doesn't matter. All right, he murmurs, drops the towel onto the horribly decorated floor and steps back. She's still a mess. He can't fix that. He can't fix anything. Come on, we gotta make it quick. He leads her back out to the bike, hands her a roll of wire and a pair of gloves, takes one of each thing for himself, and walks her down the drive toward where the road narrows. He doesn't look back at the long, curved streak in front of the house. If he could feel relief, he would be relieved that she doesn't either. He honestly could have done it alone, but with her like the deer, it goes faster. Together they put on the gloves and unspool the wire, and he marks trees on either side of the road around which they can wrap it. There's more than enough. Like before, she takes direction very well, and it begins to come to him that she might be so easy to handle now because she got what she wanted, what she thinks she needs. 
She hadn't been allowed to have it at all, not really, since she woke up. The deer wasn't alive, wasn't thrashing and screaming, but it was fresh, warm inside, and it was close enough for her. She got her meat. She got to feed. So now she's happy, content, and she'll probably do whatever he says. He's still too numb to feel sick. They end with two taut lines of razor wire stretching across the road, one at the level of his shins and one at the level of his chest. It's not impossible for a walker to go around, but one of the anchor trees is almost flush with an outcrop, and the drop on the other side becomes very steep very fast, and he thinks it's unlikely. It's not a perfect solution, but it's better than nothing. And the only real problem with it is that if he wants to go back down, doing so is now a bit more of a hassle. If he wants to walk, he can just walk around. The bike is something else. It is what it is. When he beckons to her, she follows him back up to the house. She doesn't speak. He doesn't either. He has nothing to say. The sun is beginning to set when he builds up the fire. He said they could do it this way, and she agreed, so they will. Before, it was something he wanted her to do in the interest of connecting her to some scrap of what it once meant to be human. Now it's because she's still streaked and smeared with blood, drawing brown on her hands and arms, her neck and face, caked under and around her fingernails, and her hair. She reeks with it. She gets close to him and his stomach turns. Blood never used to bother him like this. It was just another feature of the days. And he's never, in all the time he's known her, been disgusted by her. He finds a bucket in a utility closet near the kitchen, fills it with water, sets it near the fire. She's sitting on the couch again, boots off and legs tucked under her, the secret garden open in her lap. She hasn't once looked at him since they came in together, and he went to get wood. As far as he can tell, she's ignoring him completely. He's fine with that. It's when he's left and returned with some towels and soap, and is setting them down on the floor by the bucket, that she speaks again. Not, as far as he can tell, to him. Not to anyone in particular. It's quiet, low, unprompted by anything he can see. But he freezes, bent, and listens, because he can't not. One of the new things people began to find out in the last century was that thoughts, just mere thoughts, are as powerful as electric batteries, as good for one as sunlight is, or as bad for one as poison. To let a sad thought or a bad one get into your mind is as dangerous as letting a scarlet fever germ get into your body. If you let it stay there after it has got in, you may never get over it as long as you live. Surprising things can happen to anyone who, when a disagreeable or discouraged thought comes into his mind, just has the sense to remember in time, and push it out by putting in an agreeable, determinedly courageous one. Two things cannot be in one place. Where you tend a rose, my lad, a thistle cannot grow. She's quiet again. He straightens up, and when he turns, her head is still bent over the book, her eyes half-closed, the fire catching them beneath her lids and making them glow, like an animal's. His hands are still bloody from when he took hers, when he tried to clean her. What made him try to do that? What was he actually hoping to get from it? What the fuck could she have gotten? What good did it do her? What good is any of this really doing her? He thought he was getting her back. Take your bath, he says, and leaves her. He spends some time in the very back bedroom, looking over the books on the shelf without registering any of the titles on the spines. None of it is interesting. None of it means anything. 
These are the stories of a dead world, and in the end they didn't mean anything either. They're like dead languages, where the tablets and the carvings and the scrolls remain, but no one's left to speak the words. The alphabet and vocabulary and grammar can be deciphered and made sense of, and the words can be read, but no one remembers what any of it sounded like. They have no weight, no reality. No one uses those words to govern or teach or converse or buy or sell, to fix things and break them and go to war and beat peace into being. No one uses those words to sing to a baby. No one uses those words to say, I love you. They might as well burn. But she won't let go of that fucking book. He's not thinking, standing there, wandering aimlessly from room to room, tracking the passage of the last of the light, but forgetting the time. He's not thinking when he walks back down the hall on the short flight of stairs, when he turns, and there she is. Then he can't think. He never looked at her. He could have, could have glanced, peeked, and she wouldn't have known. She doesn't know now, not as far as he can tell. She's on her knees on one of the towels he set down for her, facing the fire with her back mostly to him, face unseen, naked, and washing herself. She's doing it slowly, almost meditatively, rinsing the cloth in the bucket and wringing it out, passing it over her skin, returning it to the bucket, and repeating the exercise. Her hair is damp, falling all around her face. She must have washed it, too. He never looked at her. Never looked like this. Never saw how the curve of her waist deepens when she's kneeling this way. How the fire casts her head and shoulders and upper arms into a kind of low sun glow. He never caught a glimpse of her bare thighs folded against her calves and slightly spread. Never saw the graceful dip of her spine. Never saw her raise an arm to pass the cloth over her back and reveal her right breast small and full, the soft hint of a curve rather than the curve itself, nipple tight and tiny with gold. She was marble, now she looks gilded, all her skin shadows and ruddy gold, shining wet in the firelight. He never looked at her like this, so until now he never looked away, fists clenched stone with a tornado spinning in his chest. He never looked away, hands bloody and everything burning, acid eating into his throat. She was never a child to him. He looks at her now, and that's not all he sees. She dresses, and in spite of her earlier meal, she eats what he puts in front of her. Fire-heated tomato soup and more crackers, as she always does. Feeds herself like a machine with those even, regular rises and falls of her elbow, her arm, the slide of her spoon against the bowl coming every few seconds like a surrealist clock. He doesn't look at her as she eats, and he doesn't eat with her. He moves around in front of the fire, building it up against a night growing surprisingly cool given the heat of the day, gathering up the towels, picking up the bucket. The towels are, like everything she touches, it seems, streaked pale red. The water in the bucket is pink. She doesn't once glance up at him. He empties the bucket outside, stands for a moment and feels the slipping temperature, tilts his head back and stares up at the sky. It's clear, expansive. It curves over him, cupping the world in a dark palm. The stars are almost too brilliant to look at. The long smear of blood in the driveway looks black. He brought her up here to save her, to try. But he knows that was wrong. He knows he was an idiot. Now he's trapped here with something he doesn't recognize, doesn't understand, isn't sure he wants to. He has no idea what happened, 
No idea what's going on. No idea how this is going to end. A while after, he sits in the last of the firelight and watches her sleep. Didn't put her to bed. Didn't cover her. Didn't stroke her hair. Still a little damp. He's keeping a distance. He's not sure when he'll be able to stop. It feels like today lasted a week. Maybe it did. His sense of time is definitely fraying at the edges, getting slippery, soaked in blood. When he closes his eyes, everything he sees is bloody. He looked at her, feeding on that deer, and now he thinks about how he first met Rick, and how this whole fucking thing began, and years later, deer again, falling to his knees in the woods when everyone was dying in every meaningful way. Dead girl. Walker girl. Even at her most, apparently, sane. That's still what she's making herself into. That's still what a significant part of her wants to be. And she's there, a few yards away from him, curled on her side with her arms tucked under her chest, looking so small, the scars on her face like deep rivers cut across a landscape seen from miles up, the imprint of his hand darkening around her wrists like a perverse replacement for the bracelets she lost. Motionless and breathing, face relaxed, blood pulsing through her, warm, soft. Last night he held her, and tonight he thinks if he touched her again he would burst into flames, and he would deserve it. He fucked everything up. He's still fucking everything up because he won't get away from her. Because he won't take her home. Because he refuses to let her have a home. Because he is, to a degree he only now sees and can only now admit, making this place a prison and making himself her jailer, her warden. Except he's also making himself something more than that, and something worse. Something worse, seeing her like a child, and then seeing her that way, and it's wrong. It's very wrong. Since she dried herself and dressed, he's been hit by wave after wave of subtle, almost imperceptible dizziness. Vertigo. The floor is unsteady. The wind pushes against the house, and it feels like it's rocking very slightly, moving like a ship sailing through dark water. No map. No stars to steer by. No land in sight. He'll sleep. They'll wake up, and she'll throw her pretty things off the mountain, and he'll feed her, and they'll do whatever they do, and he'll tell himself they're safe, and he'll tell himself he's safe with her, and he'll tell himself she's safe with him. When he does sleep, when he does dream, it's of her teeth. Stretched out on the pavement, her hands on him, tipping his head back. When she clamps her jaws down on his throat and rips her head sideways, he thrusts his fingers into her hair and moans her name. It doesn't hurt. It's better now. The dream is gone, and she's staring at him from across the room. There's no light anymore, but her eyes are glittering. She smiles, and her teeth are rubies. His mouth is full of blood.
and all your roads lead to this by Moonwalking Dead. He can't really remember when he stopped believing in a higher power. Must have been around six, seven, maybe. Pretty young and, well, too young, really. He doesn't remember, wishes he can, but to recall would require going back to this dirt path with a sign that points home. He'd rather not return, see the memories tucked away inside that cabin of theirs if he can help it. It's much too painful, you see, to traipse down that tree-lined street and into his junkyard childhood with its belts and broken bottles and constant mantras of, you useless piece of shit. But it would have been an important day, real vital. A realization like that, it's an epiphany, is what it is, albeit a little backwards. It even sounds philosophical and shit when you put it this way. Little Boy Blue is alone in the universe and can't rely on anyone else but himself. If it's worded like that, well, damn if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What would a boy like him think, picking himself up after every beating, with no help at all, save from his own aching limbs? There's no higher power, not in this hell of a home he grew up in. He even has the scars to prove it, but you won't see them. Not all are on his back, after all. The paved route that winds all over and around the years that make up his adolescence contains some of the most colorful memories of his life. But don't get him wrong. It's not the vibrant, happy kind of colorful. His teen years are smashed macabre crimson red and dark purple and greenish and fading yellow in the form of split lips and bleeding noses, black eyes, and bloody knuckles. Fighting. A whole lot of fighting. And this theory of his, this absence of a higher power, it's just proven further as he brawls and fights and bleeds, but for absolutely nothing. Nothing of much importance, anyway. Little Boy Blue is in a universe with others who are as alone as him, relying on themselves in the same way he relies on himself. Out on the streets, he quickly learns that a higher power is either him or them, someone who conquers everyone else, beats them to the ground. Looks terrible for it after, but will still be able to say, you should see the other guy. There's no higher power in the omnipotent sense, not in this world that is just an extension of his home, a bigger, badder kind of hell. The only kind of power he knows is earned with every well-placed punch, one fight at a time. Self-reliance, you know. This time he's the one giving away scars. He's got enough to last several lifetimes, thanks, and it's time for everyone else to get their own. Adulthood is oh so cruel, a double and triple and quadruple serving of the best of all hells when you're already at the prime of inferno living. But it's nothing he can't handle. Been there, done that. And he's still taking the same old roads he's taken, only he's older and knows which way to go, or not to go, better. He's like a war veteran here with his scars that won't really go away, especially the ones eyes can't see. Their ache is duller now, except on some days. And there's no higher power to be found still, just him with his recollections of scarring people left and right. Fighting now, it's just to practice or feel alive, no longer the power trip it was once before. And there's still nothing important to fight about, but after you've used up every reason to throw a fist, you just come to a realization. Do you really need reasons anymore? Little Boy Blue is still alone in this universe. There's just so much time to think about how lonely he really is all of a sudden, and after all these years, even while trying to make ends meet working shitty jobs, drifting around with his brother, drinking booze, smoking cigarettes. Stop. 
rewind, living without living at all, on a loop. He doesn't say this lightly, but it's true anyway. Even hell gets boring once you get used to the flames. Lonely, too. Lonely and boring, the same landscape over and over, whether he's stealing a ride on Merle's bike or driving his trusty old truck. He's been on these roads all his life, just keeps going in circles. Same old shitty little life. And then, things change. The apocalypse decides to happen, and the paths and streets and lanes he used to stumble on, drunk and angry and hurting, they begin branching out, away from the familiar and into the unknown. His hell just got bigger than it ever was. Crueler. And he doesn't know it yet, but his backwards epiphany is already writing itself, even though everything around him is falling apart. The higher power he's been doubting is even smiling now, rather excitedly, very affectionately, shaking his head at his impatience, but glad they're here now, that he's made it. My strong and beautiful boy, you're ready. The quarry and losing his brother with nothing to hold on to but a hand. The disaster that was the CDC and looking for Sophia. Finding the farm and discovering that they'd lost Sophia from the start. Losing the farm. I want you to meet somebody, little boy blue. It's a little gray girl, or soon to be little gray girl. Running, running, running some more, and the prison. Fighting, fighting, fighting some more, and finding his brother, but losing him again. This time for good. You'll need her, and she's going to need you too. Family. Losing his family, but one. Just one. More running. It just never fucking ends. The moonshiner's cabin. The funeral home. A blue-eyed girl with her white gold hair, and it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And he doesn't know it yet, but he's been preparing himself to meet her all his life. Daryl Dixon, my dear boy. Meet Beth Green. you enjoy that i did too uh so many thanks to moonwalking dead for giving me permission to read that um it's always kind of weird finding old fix and then hoping to god that the author is still around and still responding to stuff so that they'll they can say yes and you won't be reading it without their permission which i, I wouldn't do although god it's tempting sometimes just because i love it and yeah anyway uh, thank you so much, Moonwalking Dead, for letting me read it. It was super awesome, and I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I, I love when you join me, and we enjoy fic together. Um, so far, I'm actually mostly continuing to keep to my schedule. I'm going to take a second and congratulate myself for that, because that's not the easiest thing, but I'm committed. I'm so committed, and I'm going to be even more committed over the hiatus, because it's hiatus time, and that means no more canon, and that makes those of us who enjoy the canon sad. So yeah, thank you so much, uh, blah 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 Patreon, PayPal, if you want to make me extra super happy and show that you love me in a material way, then that's something you can do, and you know what, I'm going to assume you love me anyway. I'm just going to operate on that assumption. Alright, I'm going to get going, because i got to edit this shit and then i got to get it posted. Next episode of this is going to drop in two weeks, I'm going to be 
interviewing somebody for that. Don't know who yet, but I have a couple possibilities. Just need to figure it out, get in touch with them. Regardless of who it is, it's going to be fucking awesome. And I will talk to you then. Bye.